Chapter 16, Unknown. Will I be back before Wart and Beatrice wake up? I can't promise that. But you will see them again. Something cold pricked at Wart's nose and ears. He tossed and turned on the solid ground, eyelids sealed shut and unwilling to open. The wind wailed around him, he pulled his woolen cape closer to him. In the distance, dwarfed by the howl of the air, a groveling but suave voice sang. It weakened, a sign that it was traveling away from the tree Wart braced against. Drops of coldness peppered against his exposed skin. With a second wriggle, Wirt's foot kicked at Greg's teapot. The clang of the metal opened his eyelids, and he darted his eyes to the sleeping Greg to make sure he still slept. Greg, he whispered. There was no Greg. Just a tea kettle, Adelaide's basket, and a frog where Greg had slept. Greg, he called out again, an octave higher from before. At the rustling noise behind him, Wirt spun around, hoping to see Greg returning from a casual nighttime stroll or from the necessity of relieving himself. Instead, it was Beatrice, who slept undisturbed. She stretched a little. In the moonlight, silvery and whimsical, Wirt saw snowflakes falling from the sky. The ground remained uncovered, suggesting the snow started just minutes before he woke up. If it were not for the panic in his chest and the tremor of his hands and the lack of Greg, Wirt could easily craft poetic verses over the beauty of the sight. Greg, he repeated once more, just in case Greg was close by, about to come back from his nighttime stroll. Wirt chose to remain in denial of what was so. Clear and obvious to him. His legs wobbled as he stood up, and he pinched himself, one last time to assure himself he was not dreaming. He pinched himself as hard as his fingers could come together in between his skin, it would not surprise him if a bruise were to form at the spot later. He sighed and picked up the tea kettle and the lug of a frog. The frog croaked from the contact, and Wirt dropped the amphibian into the kettle. You're as useless as Jason Funderburker. Wirt glared at the frog, who blinked back at him. He chose a direction at random and stepped forwards, hopeful that Greg would not be too far, and that he would remember his way back to the tree. He refused to accept the alternative likelihood. He walked against the wind and shivered. The beautiful woodland night scene curdled with the terror of a missing younger brother. Beatrice shuddered herself awake. Light snow dusted the ground before her, and more snow drifted down to join the translucent white patches. She breathed into the palms of her hand and rubbed her upper arms to warm herself. It was too early in November for snow, but at the same time, she ignored its presence. In the corner of her eye, Beatrice recognized a red item rolling over to her. It was Wirt's pointed hat. She grabbed the rim and twisted her waist to pass the hat over to Wirt, regardless of whether or not he was asleep. Here you go, you. She was alone. No Wirt. No Greg. Wirt. Greg. Beatrice scrambled to her feet. You guys, are you there? No frog. No tea kettle. Beatrice's chest constricted before her heart could be released into an abyss. No. No 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 no. Tears welled in her eyes, but she fought them from spilling out. She clutched the red cone hand to her chest, and she shivered in the cold. What happened? Where could they have gone? When did they leave? Why would they leave without her? How could they leave without her? Desperation clung to every thought processing itself in Beatrice's mind, every motion she took. This direction. No, this one. No, the opposite one. She had not even taken a step away from the tree, and yet she was already questioning which path to take. No visible footprints led the way, no indication of where the boys would be. 
She closed her eyes and released an exhale. They're fine. They're okay. You just have to find them. They're fine. They're okay. You just have to find them. They're fine. They're okay. You just have to. Her eyes fluttered open, weary and frightened. She stepped to the south, Beatrice hoped it was the south, based on her memory of where the taxi driver had pointed, and sprinted. Wandering. Wandering. Endless, but not listless, wandering. Beatrice called out their names until her throat grew hoarse. She swallowed some saliva before repeating the process all over again. Wirt. Greg. She stopped for brief moments to rub her arms and attempt to warm herself, but it came to the point where her fingers froze numb, and no amount of hot breath would heat them up. The snow would go away soon, it was one of those light snows meant to tease people for a later, heavier snowfall. Only the snow was not teasing her now. She suffered in it, each step a struggle forward. Beatrice thought she was going south to the wall, not entirely sure why she chose to go that route in hopes of finding Word and Greg, but it was likely she lost track of the path and made an inadvertent turn somewhere. She possessed a terrible sense of direction, even as a bluebird. In hindsight, the irony to act as Word and Greg's guide would have sent Beatrice into a fit of laughter. The current situation, however, led her to think less humorous thoughts. Not about to let those dreary ponderings win over and coerce her into giving up her search, Beatrice shoved her fears down and carried forwards. One hand held onto Wirt's cone hat, flinging at her side. The other grasped a fistful of her dress's skirt so she would not trip over the hem and delay herself. They're fine. They're okay. You just have to find them. The last time she ran in this frantic manner, she had a sprained arm, and she was fleeing from Wirt and Greg. She found Adelaide instead, and the witch almost kept her forever as her own little pet. You'll never break that curse, my dear. Not without the stork scissors. But you'll never be near them. You'll never leave. Don't think of this as imprisonment. Think of it as finishing the debt you caused when you killed my bird. When the two brothers stumbled across the witch's cottage, it was the first time the three of them became an unlikely trio. Wirt, with the scissors, Greg, the, unintentional, distraction, and Beatrice, the one who opened the window. Oh, don't worry, I'll keep my eyes on you. I stay inside on cold days like these. The winter will be my death, Adelaide had said to her before Wirt and Greg arrived. Whatever clicked in her mind, Beatrice flew with it and opened, with all her might, the window that killed Adelaide. And now, Beatrice was running to find those two boys. The ones who elicited a happiness and warmth she stopped experiencing after the curse. The ones who made her smile and made her want to be a better person, a better version of herself. Greg, his happy-go-lucky attitude, his whimsy, his optimism, his thoughtfulness. Wirt, his poetry, his music, his cynical dreaming, his security, his thoughtfulness. Her friends, her closest friends, her best friends. She needed to find them before any harm came their way. Especially Greg, with his sickness. Especially Wirt, with the chance to tell him that maybe, just maybe. Beatrice jogged in this stretch, the snow flurrying against her and settling into her loosening hair, when she squinted. Ahead, she scarcely made out a clearing from behind the trees. Without a second thought, she pushed forward. She stopped in her tracks at the line of the trees, and gulped once she saw the sight before her. The open, frosted meadow stretched flat and barren to a tall and wide structure. The garden wall. Had she really traveled seven miles in her solo nighttime trip? 
From all the running, and the sprinting, and the exasperated speed walking, it only felt like she covered three miles. Maybe it was the agitation and delirium brewing inside of her motivating her to go so far in such little time. Or, the taxi driver's directions were a little off and she was closer than she thought. And there was always the inadvertent chance of stumbling through a shortcut no one knew about. When was the last time she saw the garden wall? Thirteen years old, the butcher's son, her first and only kiss, it flooded back to her, the grayish memory not worth remembering, but hazy enough for her to latch onto the important details. The butcher's son, one, or two, years her senior, the bottle of rum he stole, the lazy and gross kiss they shared. Her memory of it was probably worse than it actually was. Back then, he talked about the wall and all the speculation and mythos around it. Something about another place, wildly different but similar at the same time. At thirteen, she thought nothing of them other than tall tales this boy was sharing with her to sound worldly and intelligent. Now, she knew not all of those stories were as fictitious as she once thought them to be. If it were not for the anger, desperation, and anxiety tearing at her sanity to the base brick by brick, she would find the setting pretty, with the moonlight poking out of the slate-gray clouds and a gradual. Placid snowflakes. Greg would play in the snow, and Wirt would compose verses of poetry while she juggled to interact with both of them, romping around with Greg and teasing Wirt. Wirt and Greg. The coil in her stomach tightened at the thought of the two. They were gone, amidst the snow, the moonlight, and the trees, and their boundary stood in its infamy. She gripped the cone hat in her hands to the point her knuckles whitened. She glanced back up to the wall and glowered at it, an unfortunate idea sifting into her mind. What if they crossed the garden wall without her? With Wirt's behavior from earlier, passive-aggressive, distant, an insistence that he was not upset when he so visibly was, she would not put it past him to take Greg and head for the garden wall himself, breaking his promises for one last final and devastating time. They were close enough to make the journey back on their own, even in the dark woods. Her eyes watered, not just from the cold wind blowing against her face, and a lump swelled in the back of her throat. How could he do that? How could he leave her without a goodbye, without her having the opportunity to say farewell to Greg and wish that he would heal in good time? If Wirt did not want her joining him over the wall, he just needed to say so. It would have hurt, but not as much as it did now. Beatrice wiped away the tear trickling down her cheek, the only warmth she felt in the time since she woke up. She was ready to turn back and run away, ready to let her sobs escape and herself crawl into a ball and let the night do with her what it wanted until the morning came. Forget about Wirt and Greg, forget about ever seeing the place. She heard about in Wirt's stories. Go her separate path to find her family and snip their wings. Oh, that asshole. She stormed for the wall. They're fine. They're okay. I'm going to kill him. He never even bothered to leave the scissors behind. She was going to cross that wall, find Wirt, slap him until he was senseless and could not remember her taking the scissors away from him, and return to her side to help her family. He could have left the damn scissors. The wall grew larger with her every step, and she cursed at it along the way. Stupid wall. Not stupid Greg, with his loving and happy demeanor, his care for everyone, his sweet imagination, his untarnished youth. But stupid Wirt, with his stupid cone hat and his stupid cape, his stupid name, his stupid height, his stupid faint freckles, his stupid golden brown eyes, his stupid hair, his stupid bent nose and big ears, his stupid poetry, his stupid bassoon playing, his entire stupidity. Stupid Marguerite and stupid Lorna for thinking Beatrice would ever have feelings for him. Stupid, stupid, stupid Beatrice for throwing a rock at Adelaide's bird, and stupid Adelaide, 
2. For turning her into a bluebird, for agreeing to Ward's demands, for thinking they were friends, for entertaining the thought that Marguerite and Lorna were right. Lost in the incoherence of her rage as she fumbled to lift herself off the ground and onto the wall, she nearly missed the voice from above. Oh my god. Startled, Beatrice fell back to the ground, her bum thudding first, and looked upwards. Sitting at the top of the garden wall, legs dangling over, was someone. The voice was feminine, but in the darkness and the distance, Beatrice could not see whomever it was. She saw some motion, followed by a soft click. A bright white light shone down at her. Beatrice squinted. Oh my god. Against her better judgment, Beatrice scrambled to climb the garden wall for a second time. It was not too different from climbing a tree, but the task took its toll, especially with the cone hat occupying one of her hands. She hoisted her bottom onto the plateaued width of the wall, a gap of at least eight inches in between her and the other person. She panted once she situated herself at the top. The light followed her. Closer, Beatrice noticed the light emanated from a tube, and her unlikely companion held the tube in her hand. Beatrice saw it was her when she placed the light source down on the brick, with the light shining upwards to the sky and casting a glimmer on both of them. The girl was about her age, with short black hair and deep brown skin. She wore thick, dark-colored trousers, and a coat that stopped at her hips, with intricately designed patches on the arms. You live on that side, Beatrice thought aloud. The girl nodded. And you come from that side. She pointed to the trees where Beatrice came from. Beatrice nodded. Aren't you cold? Yes, Beatrice admitted. The girl grinned, open mouthed and eyes sparkling. Oh my god, she repeated, this time astounded and excited. I can't believe this. I never knew, no one. Knew that, this is incredible. She reached over to Beatrice. What's it like over here? Your side, I mean. Beatrice bit her lip. Um, it's. She wondered if she should share the details about her side of the wall. Considering the reaction Wirt gave off whenever he saw the oddities, Wirt, that jerk, Beatrice could not even imagine what this girl would think just from hearing about them. It's different. A lot to explain. The girl swung one of her legs over the opposite side of the wall and faced Beatrice. I have lots of time. I don't, Beatrice retorted, but regretted it once the words left her mouth. I'm sorry, but I'm looking for someone. I think he crossed over this wall recently. I've been here for. The girl brought her wrist up to her face, 40 minutes now, and no one's crossed this wall. I would have seen them. No one. Except you, but you haven't really crossed. It eased her mind enough to think more clearly. Wirt and Greg could have crossed before this girl arrived, but now, Beatrice doubted her fury-laden guess. If so, then Wirt and Greg were still on her side of the wall, lost and wandering. She considered descending to her side once again and running back into the trees and resumed her search for the brothers, but she stopped herself for many reasons. Exhaustion, hopelessness, doubting her doubt, too many to count and explain to herself. She huffed and closed her eyes for a few seconds. Are you okay? the girl asked. No, Beatrice said, but not to sound rude. I, I just need a moment to collect myself. She turned to look over to the side that was not hers, only for her curiosity's sake. She saw headstones. Is that a cemetery? The girl nodded. They sat in silence. Beatrice, fatigued, aching, and petrified, the girl, curious, inquisitive, and bundled up. I'm Sarah, the girl piped up. Sarah. B. 
Beatrice repeated. Sarah's a common name, she told herself. Isn't one of my second cousins named Sarah many times removed? I'm Beatrice. Nice to meet you, Beatrice. Sarah stuck out her hand, covered with a glove. Beatrice shook it. Do you want to wear my jacket for a little bit? Don't you need it? I have three layers underneath this thing, Sarah said as she unfastened her outerwear with a metallic object that made a zip sound. And I generate a lot of heat. Like, sometimes I keep a fan on in my bedroom during the winters. I'll be fine without it for a while. She passed the coat over to Beatrice, who accepted it graciously. It was not as warm as she expected it to be, but it blocked the wind and gave Beatrice the semblance of coverage. Sarah reached over to pull the metal fastener upwards. Thank you. No sweat. Sarah giggled. Sorry, pun unintended. Beatrice was too weak and cold to even chuckle, but she smiled. She closed her eyes again. Too many emotions warred with themselves in her mind, but she stayed still at the top of the garden wall. Sarah's jacket had pockets. She placed her hands in them so she could regain feeling in her fingers. A cup of hot cocoa or hot cider would be nice now, warming her hands, her insides, her spirit. Do you know about? Beatrice did not open her eyes, but she responded. Know about what? About my side. Like, do people from where you come from know about us? We don't know about you. I know about your side, Beatrice replied, I still closed. I think a few others know, too. But otherwise, not really. The wall is feared. No one likes to go near it. That's kind of like here. For the adults, I think. Teenagers like me always make up stupid stories about what's on the other side, your side. Beatrice nodded. She should climb down. She should find Wirt and Greg. What's different about your side? Sarah pried again. I've always wanted to know. Always. I think one of my friends crossed over, but he, she stopped. Beatrice opened her eyes and studied Sarah in the shine of the automatic light. She furled her brow as she stared out to the meadow and the trees. Please, I just want to know. I'd like to see for myself, but, I don't know, something kinda holds me back, you know. Beatrice refrained from sighing and explained several key differences. She spared the talk of magic, cursed bluebirds, witches, flesh-eating spirits, talking horses, the beast, and opted to talk about the more mundane aspects of life, based on her knowledge of her life and how it contrasted from Wirt's various stories. We don't have these, she pointed to the light tube. Flashlights. You don't have electricity. Beatrice shook her head. Wow. This would make a good sci-fi movie. A place surrounded by modern technology but has none of its own. Oh, ah, uh, do you know what a movie is? Yes. I know. Sarah smiled. Cool. They talked more, with Beatrice losing track of the time and where Wirt and Greg could be, whether she should be furious with Wirt or adamant in finding him and his brother. She liked speaking with Sarah, who was nice. No wonder Wirt likes her. Beatrice liked being off of her feet, taking a moment to rest and re-energize herself. Sarah was an avid listener, mesmerized in the same manner Beatrice had been with Wirt, even if she was not as lyrical and literary as Wirt could be. It sounds so fascinating. Almost like a fantasy novel. You don't even know. I think yours sounds better, Beatrice confessed. I want to experience everything I've only heard in the stories told to me. If you know about what lies on my side, 
then why haven't you tried to visit yet? Beatrice twisted the red hat in her hands. It's a long story, she sighed. Silence fell around them once more. The meadow was a little whiter with its dusting of snow, but Beatrice anticipated it would melt away with the morning. Sun. If there would be a morning Sunday. Enervation pulled at her eyelids, begging her to fall asleep on the wall and worry about everything else with the morning. Hey, I've seen the hat before. Beatrice looked up at Sarah, who pointed to the red cone hat. At a loss for words, Beatrice only stared at Sarah in hopes she would have more words to say. Sarah kept her eyes on the hat as if she were trying to figure it out, examining it as a fine piece of art on display. Sarah dragged her gaze from the hat to Beatrice. Have you seen? Wirt. No. Not recently. Greg, neither. They left me. Unintentionally. Or intentionally. I don't know. But I haven't seen either of them since Wirt shut me out because I was trying to open up and talk to him about serious stuff, and now they're missing and I'm too tired to find them and they're not fine, they're not okay, I don't know if I'll ever find them. Beatrice. It was not Sarah, who sat next to her. The voice was male, distant, and hollering. Beatrice bolted her head up, her attention on the white meadow and the snow, which reminded her of her mother sifting flour for baked goods, and the small figure barreling towards the wall with a bulky, rounded object in its hands. Whatever that was broken inside Beatrice, it repaired itself once she heard Wirt cry out her name. He should have told Beatrice. He added that to the list of other things he should have done when it came to Beatrice. He should have woken her up the moment he saw Greg was missing, and then they could search for him together. Except he was trying his hardest to convince himself that Greg was okay, that Greg was not too far, and that he would find him soon enough, and then waking Beatrice would be useless. And now, he could not turn back and go to her because he was lost. Like that first night when he and Greg walked through the woods in a blur, no direction, no certainty, no concept of time and space, Wirt found himself amongst trees and totally, hopelessly, utterly lost. No bluebird to guide him. No brother to remain optimistic. Greg. Greg. Cold, cold, and cold. Nothing but cold, and trees, and snow, not enough to deter him, but enough to shake him. He passed an Edelwood, its gnarled bark and branches ugly and ominous, the image of a face screeching out in terror. A sticky black substance oozed from the ridges of the bark. Wirt shuddered at the sight and the memory of Beatrice in the dark wardrobe telling him about Edel Woods and the beast. Greg, he screamed for the millionth time. Or billionth. He stopped counting at around twenty-two. Greg was gone, but he refused to believe Greg was gone. Wirt tripped over the root of a tree, not an Edel Wood, he sighed in relief, and his knees crashed to the icy ground as the tea kettle and frog projected out of his hands and landed onto the earth several inches in front of him. Face forward, Wirt kept still. His knees burned from the impact, and the heels of his hands stung. With a groan, he rolled onto his back and moaned up to the clouded sky. He could stay like this forever. Outstretched on the terrain, wallowing in his poor decisions and poor behavior. Wirt hated himself. All of this was his fault. He could try to blame Greg for bringing them to the outskirts of the town and inventorying his candy in the cemetery, but it was Wirt who climbed the wall and led them far away. It was Wirt who neglected to look after his brother properly, berating him for existing. Beatrice was right. He was nasty to his brother. And now Greg is gone. 
His eyes grew stuffy and bleary, wet with salted tears already dripping out of the outer corners and down his temples. He wished Beatrice was with him, a young woman's voice appealing to me slash for comfort, slash a young man's voice, shall I not escape? But he was dumb, and now he was alone. No Beatrice. No Greg. Nothing except cold air, trees, and snow. Yes, he could stay like this forever. Hey there. Wirt shot up. It was a girl's voice. Beatrice. Maybe she woke up and followed him. Beatrice, is that you? A shadow emerged from the trees, and it was a girl, but she was too short to be Beatrice, and several years too young. Maybe eleven, or twelve. You're not Beatrice, he muttered, dejected. The girl approached him anyway. You can see me. He nodded. Yeah. Am I not supposed to? You didn't before. Wirt raised an eyebrow at her. What are you talking about? You heard me earlier today. You couldn't see me, but you could hear me. He scowled at the girl. I don't know what you're. You thought you were going crazy because it wasn't the little boy or the bluebird, but you weren't crazy. It was me. And now you can see me. Oh, I thought I lost you when you got on that carriage, but I found you again, Anne. Word held up a hand. Slow down. I don't know you. The girl walked to Greg's tea kettle and picked it up. She petted the frog inside. I don't know you either, but I think we can help each other. My name is Ellery. Wirt. He stood up, she handed the tea kettle to him. I saw you sometime before you went to the markets. I was following you all day, hoping you'd see me because you could hear me, and no one has heard me before. Okay. He decided to ask questions later. It's been like this for so long now. One day my father was gone, and no one would speak to me when I tried to talk to them. I found out no one could hear or see me. Not even my father, I crossed paths with him once and he went right by me. Wirt fiddled his thumbs against the body of the tea kettle. The frog croaked. You're the first person to hear me, and now you can see me, and I need your help. I can't help you, Wirt spat. I can't even help my own brother. Ellery stepped forwards. That's the little boy who was with you. You can't find him. Wirt nodded. And what about that talking bluebird? I left her, Wirt said as flatly as he could. To look for Greg. It was stupid of me, but she's far away. He struggled through the heaviness in the back of his throat. I can't help you. I just want to find my brother. I said we can help each other, Ellery offered. I know where my father is. Well, not his actual location, but I know who he would be with. And I think where my father is, your brother won't be too far away. Wirt's stomach nodded. He gulped. He could guess how Ellery would answer his upcoming question, but he needed to ask it, just in case he was wrong. He could accept being wrong when it came to this. Who would they be with? The beast. Wirt released his breath, he only realized he was holding it once it parted from him, and tightened his grip on the tea kettle's handle. Okay, he squeaked. Do you know where the beast would be? Ellery shook her head. It's a wandering soul, or spirit. But it might be close by. How do you know that? It took your brother from you. Even if you're running about, it couldn't have gone too far. We know we're close if we can hear it singing. The echoes of distant singing rung in his memory, the singing from when he woke up not too long ago, hours. 
it felt like hours. If the sun poked through the trees in the next few minutes or so, he would be unsurprised. Okay. You can join me. Ellery was no Beatrice, but she possessed a few advantages. She could provide some company. Ellery teared in the same direction Word had chosen from earlier. Much like him, she was not talkative, saving her breath for when she called out directions to Word. She weaved through the trees at a pace with which he struggled to keep up, but Wirt was not going to tell her to slow down for his sake. His thighs ached, and his woolen cape was useless now, but he followed Ellery without complaint. Time passed, maybe another hour, and he wondered if following Ellery was such a good idea. She was younger than him, but she could be a ploy of another witch. Or the beasts. His determination to find Greg, however, eclipsed his doubts. This way. Ellery pointed some time later to a path off to the right. But Wirt caught sight of something up ahead about a quarter of a mile. It looked as if the tree stopped. He paused to stare at it some more. His legs stepped towards it. Where are you going? Ellery called. She was already at the opening of the path she indicated. Tralala, Tralala, chop the wood to light the fire. Wirt, that's the beast. He's this way. Word ignored her and jogged ahead, too many guesses and curiosity stirring in his brain. Hey! You're going in the opposite direction. Ellery's calls drowned out as Word hastened to the trees. Snowflakes patted at his face. And then he saw it. And, if he squinted, he saw two objects with limbs. Is it? His feet did his thinking for him. The snow, freshly fallen and soft, crunched with each step, and he tripped over once or twice, only to find his footing again. Even with the nighttime surrounding him and obscuring his view, he saw blue and red, illuminated by the soft glow of moonlight. He was maybe a quarter of the way into the meadow when her name erupted from his throat and mouth, not caring if it was not her at the top of the garden wall. Beatrice. He was maybe another five or six strides closer when he heard her call his name back. I hark for the bird, and all the hushed hills hearken. The last time Sarah saw Word in person, it was at the post-Halloween game party, the day before Halloween. He wore a gnome costume, with a pointy red hat and a blue cape with buttons. She was a little buzzed at the time, from the combined efforts of a vodka shot once she stepped into Hannah Colton's party house, and the few cups of cranberry vodka she made while she spoke to Word, but she remembered a few bits and pieces of their conversation. The clearest memories were of her talking about the garden wall. She expected to see him in their shared English class on Monday. She did see him again, but not then. It was the Monday evening local news, with an awkward school photograph on the screen as an anchor announced, local authorities are looking into the mysterious disappearance of two half-brothers, the 15-year-old Word Foreman and the 7-year-old Greg Schmidt. They were last seen trick-or-treating on Halloween evening this past Saturday. Tensions remained taut in the days following, the white elephant of Wirt's absence hung over every classroom, staircase, and hallway of the high school. Probably the elementary school as well, with Greg's non-attendance. No one talked about it officially, save for Principal Morrison, who gave an announcement over the intercom about the unfortunate circumstance, and that if anyone had any information to provide, they were to share it with the police or Wirt's parents. Sarah had no information, but she had a suspicion. Sadly, suspicions lacking in evidence were not enough to help a formal police investigation. Even if her intentions were in the right place, suspicions also came from weirdos and perverts trying to rattle those who suffered, and Sarah decided to keep her suspicions to herself. She did, however, 
go to the Formenschmidt household with a plate of homemade cookies and gave her sincerest condolences to Wirt and Greg's parents. Wirt's mother, sleep-deprived and tear-stained, thanked her, Sarah listened to her talk about how she got the call from their neighbor while she was out of town taking care of her own sick mother, how Wirt and Greg never returned from their trick-or-treating on Halloween, and she rushed back as quickly as she could. Sarah awkwardly sat as Mrs. Schmidt wept. Unable to say where she suspected Wirt and Greg were, it was the least she could do. She avoided the eternal garden cemetery and the garden wall in those days and attempted to focus on her schoolwork as the initial shock whittled down amongst the townsfolk. But that night, curiosity won out, and she snuck out of the house to sit at the top of the wall and contemplate whether or not her inklings were correct. She lost track of the time, caught up in her mind and the drifting snow, too early in the year but exquisite to watch regardless, when she saw the figure attempt to climb the wall on the side. Sarah almost forgot about Wirt and Greg as she spoke to the girl, Beatrice, until she noticed the red object in Beatrice's hands, and heard Beatrice's name yelled out. Wirt. Sarah called out, but Beatrice had joined her as well. Without a beat, Beatrice scrambled down the wall, still wearing Sarah's jacket, as a wild and disheveled Wirt sprinted with his spindly legs to the wall. He dropped a metal thing, a tea kettle, as Sarah saw when she shined her flashlight on it, and held his arms up for Beatrice. From the way they reached out to each other, urgent, pleading, desirous, delirious, Sarah was certain they would kiss. A reunion kiss, like the soldiers and sailors who returned from overseas and met their loved ones again. They never did, but they might as well have, they embraced and touched one another's faces, their voices a mix of frenzy and relief as they said things like. I thought you left me. I wouldn't. I mean, I did, but not like that. I thought you were mad at me for what I said and left for the wall with Greg. No, never. Then why'd you leave, you loser? Because I can't find Greg. Only half understanding the scene unfolding before her, Sarah's heart twisted at the mention of Greg. From the silence that followed after Wirt spoke, she understood it affected Beatrice as well. What are you talking about? Greg, he's gone. I woke up and he wasn't next to me. I think, Wirt paused. I think the beast has him. More quiet. Fuck. I should have woken you up, I know that, it's just another one of the things I should have done, but I didn't think anything of it at the time. I tried not to. I thought he woke up and took a small walk, but Ellery. Who is Ellery? I'll explain later, but we have to go. Wirt, wait, Sarah called from the top of the garden wall, before he could turn around and take Beatrice with him. She shines her flashlight at the site below her. Wirt, for the first time since he arrived at the wall, looked up. Sarah. What are you doing here? I could say the same for you. Turns out you climbed the wall. He nodded, ever so slowly. Yeah. I did. It was not the time and place to tell him, and she felt guilty for even thinking it during such an agitated and tumultuous moment, but Sarah admired and envied Wirt for doing something she never had the courage to do herself. You've been gone for nearly two weeks now, Wirt. You and Greg. Your parents are worried. The police are looking into your disappearance. Oh shit, Wirt muttered, pulling at his hair. It was the first time Sarah ever heard Wirt curse, and it would not surprise her if it was the first time he swore out loud ever. He dropped his hands and glared up at her. Sarah, don't tell them you saw me over here. But tell them I'm okay. How am I supposed to know that? they'll want to know. Say I called you. Don't be specific, but tell them I'm okay, 
and I'm on my way back. Sarah could think of all the reasons that was a terrible plan, it was too hasty, too ridden with holes and susceptible to a thorough investigation. Okay, she conceded, but what about Greg? What do I say about him? Nothing. Don't say a word about Greg. Just mention me. Sarah had more questions to ask Word, like why he crossed the garden wall, why he stayed there for two weeks, how he met and knew Beatrice, what was this beast, he mentioned, where was Greg, but she guessed what his answer would be, I don't know, and when, not if, he would be back. Instead, she nodded at him and clicked her flashlight off. Okay, Word. I'll go. She stood up, about to descend down the tree. Wait. It was Beatrice's voice. Don't you want your coat back? Keep it. You need it more than I do. Thank you. Sarah. Wirt, again. Yes. What time is it? Sarah flicked her flashlight on again to glance at her wristwatch. 11.22. Way past her curfew, but she pushed aside the thought of her parents lecturing her once she returned home, if they knew she was not in her room studying for her chemistry test, which at this point, they likely did. See you later, she said with a wave before she found her footing on the tree. She saw the figures of Beatrice and Word as they dashed to the dark mass of trees. With her feet on the ground of the Eternal Garden Cemetery, Sarah did her own dashing to the Formenschmidt home. This is Beatrice. Who are you talking to? Beatrice probed once she and Word returned to the trees, the meadow, and the garden wall to their backs. Ellery, Word answered. You can't see or hear her. I can. I don't know why. How convenient. Even in the dire circumstances, Beatrice could not hide her sarcasm. She has an idea of where Greg could be. Beatrice did not need an invisible girl telling her, via Wirt, where Greg was. She knew from the second Wirt told her that Greg was not with him, and every cell in her body dripped with horror. This was what she wanted to avoid, and yet here they were, following a stranger through the forest. But Beatrice stomached those terrors and reminded herself she was reunited with Wirt. Together, and Ellery, whoever she was, they could try to find Greg. And if they found Greg, when, she corrected, when they found Greg, Beatrice would slap word for not waking her up when he first noticed Greg's disappearance. Now was not the time to dwell on such matters because the only matter at hand was Greg. Poor sweet Greg, sick and alone, at the unwilling beckoning of. Word's hand grabbed hers, pulling her through the throng of trees. She scurried behind him until she could run next to his side without him holding her hand. Wirt said nothing, presumably following this invisible Ellery. Farther and farther they went, the scene moving but still the same no matter how many strides. They took. Her entire being warred with itself. Her body, weak and longing to stop and rest but dogged to stay upright and running alongside Wirt. Her mind, caught between a tug of war of wondering if Greg was okay, he's okay, he's fine, we just have to find him, wondering if Wirt was okay, and wondering if their unseen guide knew her way through the woods. Her spirit, still suspended in euphoria to know Wirt never crossed the wall to return to his side without bringing her along, but cracked with knowing Greg was out in the forest, alone, surrounded by evil. Chulalala, Chulalala, cut the wood to light the fire. It must be the beast out there, the obsidian cricket of our inevitable twilight, singing our requiem, Wirt recited as he slowed to a walk Beatrice did not have the heart to tell him how inappropriate it was of him to think of poetry while they searched for his brother. She preferred to think of it as his coping mechanism, his means of remaining calm at a time when he only wanted to stop and scream. Which he did, several minutes later. 
Leave me alone, he snapped to the nothingness over his shoulder. At first, Beatrice thought he meant her as well. He probably did. He laid on the ground and wrapped himself in a fetal position. He cuddled the frog-occupied tea kettle. Wirt, listen here, Beatrice flared. She crouched next to him, her hand on his arm. We can't stop. Not now. He's out there. It's my fault, he moaned. No it's not, she barked. None of this is your fault. Yes it is. He pulled the collar of his cloak up to the top of his head so he could hide. It's my fault we're here. It's my fault he's gone. Stop this. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. It's getting us nowhere. It's my fault. Shut up Wirt. Shut up and get up. Greg needs you now. You made a promise to be nicer to him. This is part of that promise. Wirt sniffed from underneath his cape. His eyes peeked from over the collar. They were red, and wet around the corners. Beatrice's heart sank. She hated to see him like this. But he was the only one who could fix it. I made my own promise to deliver the both of you to the wall, but I can't do that if you won't do anything. Get up. With both of her hands, Beatrice pulled one of his hands away from his cloak and rubbed circles into his palm. Please, Wirt. Beatrice steadied her eyes on Wirt, agitated in anticipation. He's okay. He's fine. We just need to find him. Wirt sat up, his legs crossed in front of him. You don't know that. No I don't. But we've got to see for ourselves. She stood up and stretched her hand out to him. Wirt took it. Once he stood on his feet, she placed his cone hat on his head and picked up the tea kettle at the handle. Ellery, lead the way, she said to the emptiness around them. Wirt ran in one direction, and Beatrice followed him. The shadow with the eyes led him to some place. Greg coughed, almost like he was puking, but no puke was coming out, just air. Fear not, Gregory. I will rid you of that nasty cold, and you will be good as new. To do anything I want. Of sorts. You can do anything if you set your mind to it, Greg said. Sit here, Gregory, the shadow commanded, but it sounded so nice and helpful, like the school nurse who gave out small bottles of water and lollipops to all of her visitors. Greg dropped to the ground and closed his eyes. Something tickled at his ankle, but he shrugged it off. Something else, wooden and cold, held his cheeks. Chapter 17, Greg For the fifth, sixth, or seventh time that night, Wood considered tumbling to the ground and wallowing away. His throat burned from all the times he shouted Greg into the darkness, with Ellery, Beatrice, and the trees the only ones who heard him. His feet ached. His lips, dry and cracked, stung every moment he smacked them together. His eyes sagged. With every step, Wirt huffed. The snow looked so soft and peaceful. In the moments he slowed down to gather himself, he gazed at an empty space next to a tree and imagined it to be a mattress with blankets beckoning him to lie down and rest. But every time, he reminded himself of Greg out in the woods, and Beatrice's words, and every time he charged forwards, his cape billowing behind him. Greg would think I'm a superhero. Ellery glided in front of him and Beatrice, turning corners from every occasion they heard the singing. We're getting closer. This way. Fortitude surpassed any exhaustion or fret in her voice. For eleven or twelve years old, she displayed a fearlessness word only read about in books. Beatrice ran alongside him, her hair falling out of the ribbon that tied her tresses back. The loose red locks flagged behind her, the wind blowing them in. 
various directions. She wore Sarah's jacket, and she clutched Greg's tea kettle to her chest, almost hovering over it for protection. From her earlier pep talk, a berating tone, but helpful words and intentions, Word could tell she was just as weary as he was. Her voice rasped, and she pleaded. He had been too busy crying himself to notice if she was crying as well, but even if she was weak and terrified herself, she remained unfaltering as she spoke to him. Now, Beatrice pressed her lips together in a line and wrinkled her brow as she scampered. Word had difficulty keeping up with her strides, but their mutual encumbrance slowed the both of them down. The snow stopped, but the wind only heightened. Greg, Greg, Greg. Little seven-year-old Greg, his brother. Wirt tried to replay the last seven years, going on eight, with Greg in his life. He remembered when his mother first announced he would have a little brother or sister, and how, on one hot June day, their next-door neighbor babysat him when his mother and John rushed to the hospital. There had been a telephone call right as Wirt was brushing his teeth and preparing himself to go to bed. Wirt, your mother gave birth to your baby brother. Do you want me to drive you to the hospital so you can see him? I'm sure your parents would make an exception about your bedtime for such a special occasion. No. Good night. Wirt remembered seeing Greg for the first time, too, the next day, when John picked him up at the elementary school and drove him to the hospital. Greg was a chubby baby, with his chubby cheeks, chubby arms, and chubby legs. Wirt started from his spot at the side of the hospital bed while his mother and John cooed over the little alien, with its wrinkly face, dewy eyes, and rolls of baby fat. This is your baby brother, Wirt. His name is Gregory. Gregory Christopher Schmidt. Wirt had scrunched his nose at the baby. Their mother had returned. From the hospital a week or so later, and unfortunately, she had brought Greg with her. Wirt could not remember every passing remark he made to Greg as the years passed. There were too many, all jumbled with the groans, the eye rolls, the under-the-breath mutters, the disdain he felt whenever he was regulated to baby playing, and, once his mother deemed him old enough at thirteen, babysitting, duty. Walking Greg to school in the mornings. Having to share a bathroom with Greg. Helping Greg with his homework. Making sure Greg ate his greens. Taking Greg trick-or-treating. Beatrice said it was not his fault, but it was. And, truth be told, not all his memories of Greg were so terrible. There was the memory of Wirt's twelfth birthday. It unfortunately coincided with the day his grandmother was diagnosed with stage 1 colon cancer, and the plans for a celebration plummeted as their mother left immediately, John stayed behind, ordering a pizza and purchasing a store-bought lemon cake so Wirt would not feel too slighted. Wirt understood the situation. He was 14. Happy birthday Wirt. Thanks. I made you something. It was a handmade birthday card that read, in large, unsteady writing, happy day writ, each letter a different color of crayon and a backwards R, there was a scraggly drawing of a birthday cake and a birthday hat, and multicolored polka dots arrayed the folded piece of paper. On the back, Greg drew what looked like a turtle. I saw a turtle in the yard and I wanted to give that to you too but dad said no. This, this is fine, Greg. Thank you. Aside from the pizza and cake, it was the only present Wirt received that day, his mother handed him one once she returned, but it no longer felt like a birthday present. They stayed up watching a corny science fiction movie and eating pizza and adding dollops of vanilla ice cream to the lemon cake, Greg fell asleep before the movie finished. Wirt still had the birthday card tucked away in one of the drawers of his desk. Greg still made them, the card Wirt received for his 15th birthday featured a clarinet and some music notes, and his name was spelled correctly.
you're falling behind, Beatrice called to him. She ran ahead of him several inches. He picked up the pace and fell back to her side. Wirt wondered if Beatrice ever went insane from taking care of her siblings. He could barely handle being the oldest of two, how could she handle being the oldest of eight? And, she was sixteen. He assumed she had moments of frustration, eight times worth of frustration. But what were her good memories of her siblings like? What was it like to be away from them for months? Greg was gone for a few hours, and Wirt was nothing more than a sack of dread and jumping nerves. Even if Beatrice chose to leave her family, she must have felt similarly. Especially all the time she never knew of the scissors, searching for a way to help them, but coming up dry every time. At least Ellery knew her father was alive. For all Wirt knew, Greg could be dead. He trembled at the thought. He trembled some more at the thought that he could so easily accept Greg's death as a valid possibility. But it was a valid possibility. Wirt collided into Ellery's back, causing the both of them to stumble, but Beatrice caught Wirt's arm before he splat onto the ground. Listen. Ellery gasped once she stood upright again. Still holding onto Beatrice, Wirt held his breath and listened to the noises of the night. Somewhere above, and not too far away, he heard singing. The melody and lyrics oozed with gloom. Come wayward souls who wander through the darkness. There is a light for the lost and the meek. Sorrow and fear are easily forgotten when you submit to the soil of the earth. We have to keep going forward, Beatrice said before Ellery could. It sounds close by. Wirt wanted to run ahead and call out Greg's name, but his legs would not move. He stood, scared stiff of what lay ahead, as Ellery and Beatrice both looked at him. He heard a muffled thunk of metal against snow, and he felt both of Beatrice's hands, just as cold as his felt, hold both of his. Wirt, come on. We can do this. You can do this. The words came out slowly, almost in a drawl. Though her voice was hoarse and croaky, she intended to soothe. She released her grip from one of his hands, and placed her free hand at the nape of his neck, fingers weaved with his hair. He looked up at her. Blue eyes, almost silvery in the night, and tired. Greg is up there, Wirt. We just have to go to him. Greg. Greg was the only person who mattered now. He nodded. Beatrice kneeled down to pick up the tea kettle, and they resumed their running. One foot after the other, each step a warning that they must stop. But they continued anyway. Look, woodsman. He propped the axe up against a tree and held the lantern out so it could cast its light on the darkened site. With a sharp gasp, the lantern dropped to the snow-blanketed ground. It was the little boy. The trunk of a tree enveloped his left side, with vines at his open feet and right wrist. Though he slept, he looked disturbed. Another Edelwood for the forest. Another Edelwood for you to light the lantern. The woodsman shook his head. How can you do this? I have to. You've been well aware of how the lantern's oil is retrieved. Why must you worry over morals now? What is it about this boy and his brother that concerns you? You don't understand, he shouted at the white eyes. I've tried so hard all this time to ignore this, ignore all of it, but I can't anymore. The eyes colorized into rings. What are you implying, woodsman? The singing loudened. Then it stopped, and gave way to spoken words. Two voices, both deep, but different from each other. They conversed. You cannot leave me. We have a deal. Why did you drag me into this? It was Ellery's turn to cry out. Father. Father. 
you dragged yourself into it, woodsman. I offered you the deal, and you made the decision to choose it. I can't do it anymore. One cannot trade the lives of children as if they are tokens. TSK TSK, woodsman. Tis a shame you think this way. You shouldn't have gotten so attached to these two boys. You know it was for your sake I spared one of them. You didn't spare him. You've only upset him. He's searching for his brother. And what can he do? He's like me, how I used to be. I know it. Like you. No one is like you, woodsman. You're lying. It's why you spared him. You would never give up the chance to make two Edelwoods if you could. You can sense it, that oldest boy is like me. And what if he is? The more time he spends in these woods, the more time he'll become even more like you. Weak and susceptible to the boundaries placed upon us. It's why you haven't done anything to me, woodsman. Take this Edelwood for what it is worth, woodsman. More fuel for your daughter's spirit. No. Father. Ellery hollered, and she stopped running. Wirt and Beatrice halted at her sides to look upon the scene before them. From the light of a lantern on the ground, Wirt could make out a few details. A man, the woodsman from the tavern. A shadow with eyes, the silhouette of antlers on the sides of the head. In between them, half-tree stump, half-boy. Greg. Wirt screamed as loud as his lungs and his sore throat allowed. He raced to his younger brother and embraced the stump, uncaring for the two beings flanking his sides. Unthinking, he reached for the lantern on the ground and kept it close to his legs. PFF, WW Wurf. Oh, Greg, this is all my fault, I'm so sorry. Look what we have here. A shiver danced on Wirt's shoulder blades. He glanced to the left, the white eyes downturned to him and his brother. The beast. Turn away, boy. Your brother is as good as gone. Run as fast as you can and never look back. The woodsman. Father. Ellery shouted from behind Wirt. Her feet padded into the snow, but the woodsman remained unresponsive, his eyes fixated upon Wirt and Greg. Only the beast acknowledged her presence. How did you, never mind that. The eyes brightened once the head turned back to Wirt. I'm afraid it's too late, boy. Your brother belongs to the forest now. He belongs to me. Wirt felt hands on his shoulders. Beatrice crouched behind him, some of her hair fanned over her hand, his shoulder, and the front of his cape. For a moment, Wirt assumed she was using him as a shield from the beast. It dawned on him half a second later that Beatrice was not hiding from the beast. She was protecting him from the beast. Please let me have my brother. Don't bargain with it, cried the woodsman. Silence. The beast thrusted out its black hand, with it, the woodsman was slammed against a tree. The man let out a moan once his head impacted the trunk, and he shriveled to the ground. Father. Ellery screamed again as she ran to the woodsman's side, a sob working its way up into her voice. Wirt watched as the young girl pushed aside her father's hair and embraced him, he overheard her weep. A groveling noise emanated from the other side. Wirt turned to look at the beast once more. Its eyes now shone with colors. Now, where were we? Let Greg go. Be quiet, Bluebird, unless you want to end up like the woodsman, the beast barked. Beatrice's fuming hot exhale brushed against Wirt's neck. Wirt gathered himself to his feet, positioning himself in front of Greg's stump. Please, I just want him back. I beseech of you, have mercy upon us. 
You think this is something I want to do, the beast crooned, a swish of black following it as the figure circled the three of them. But it is something I must do. Without me, there is no oil. And without the oil of the Edel woods, then these woods will suffer. Your brother is helping this realm. Think of it like that. Behind him, Ellery sobs echoed. It's okay, father, I'm right here. Wirt's breaths heaved as his heart rate pounded. To steady himself, he bit into his chapped lower lip, eliciting the metallic tang of blood into his mouth. He recalled Beatrice's explanation in the armoire, and the song in the tavern. Oil, Edelwood, children. The oil, and the lantern mentioned in the tavern. Without moving his eyes from the beast, Wirt picked up the lantern at his feet. That's a lie, Beatrice griped. Wirt glanced over his shoulder to see she was standing up now. You're from the northern woods, where it's desolate and not a human soul for hundreds of miles. These woods were fine before you came. And how would you know, Bluebird? Not even your great-grandparents remember a time before me. Now, didn't I tell you to be quiet? Wait. Wirt raised his hand, the one that grasped the lantern. The beast stood less than three feet away from him, its eyes white and luminous. There must be something I can do to help Greg. Beatrice leaned over. You can't be serious, Wirt. You. The beast stepped forwards and loomed over Wirt. Yes, perhaps there is something you can do. Wirt's legs shook, and as he stepped backwards, his calves pressed against the bark of Greg's stump. One of Beatrice's unsteady hands settled on his shoulder to steady him. Consider this, the beast sneered. I cannot do much about your brother anymore. He is lost. But, I can keep him alive. And how do you intend to do that? Put his soul into that lantern, of course. The beast must have noticed how Wirt dropped his eyes to the lantern in his hands. Oh yes, I am in need of a new caretaker. That fool over there won't be of any use to me in a few years' time. I need someone young and resilient, someone like you. I can put your brother's soul into that lantern, much like his daughter's, and you can keep the flame alive with the oil. Wirt stared at Greg once more. The vines around his ankles and wrist crept up their respective limbs. He sighed and closed his eyes. Wirt, no. He shifted towards the beast. If it meant Greg was alive, well, then. Wait. That's dumb. The beast growled. What? That's dumb. And many other things. He pieced together every bit of information passed down to him, it all racing together to form one solid idea in his mind. He cradled the lantern in both of his hands. Ellery's not in this lantern. She's overrun by her father. You can see her. Word ignored the beast's question. But, the lantern has to stay lit, doesn't it? He brought the lantern up to his face. The orange and yellow flame flickered at him. It has to stay lit for your sake. The wood sake, boy. It's almost like your soul is in this lantern. He opened the lantern's small door. An icy whirl of wind swirled around Wirt, the darkness of the night closing in on him. He only saw the glow of the lantern, and the eyes. You foolish boy! The beast bellowed. Are you ready to see true darkness? Wirt gulped. To say he was terrified was a gross understatement. He quaked, his knees knocking together and his hands wobbling against the lantern. He had. Never stared into such evil before, but then again, until he crossed the wall, he never knew such evil existed. But he had to do this. For Greg. 
for Beatrice and everyone else on this side of the garden wall. For himself. He cleared his throat. Are you? He turned his back to the beast's eyes, the swish of his cape following him in a circle, and faced Beatrice. She stared at him with fear written across her face, as if she were about to ask him what he was doing. Trust me, he whispered and shoved the lantern closer to her. As if she read his mind, Beatrice placed her hands onto the body of the lantern and nodded, her own hands shaking. Not stopping to count to three, he blew into the lantern's mouth. No. The beast cried out. There was a void. Wirt stood, or floated. It felt like he was standing, but there was no ground beneath him to look at. He dropped the lantern, or he thought he did. He pushed the palm of his hand onto his face, but he did not see its silhouette. Greg, he whimpered. Not even the wind answered him. Beatrice. He walked in the direction he assumed to be his left. No light anywhere. Just black. Groaning noises erupted from somewhere behind him. He ran towards them, Greg. Beatrice. Wirt. The voice was too faint and garbled for him to distinguish as either Greg or Beatrice, similar to hearing it underwater. Greg. Wirt moved in the direction of the voice. Wirt. It was louder, but still jumbled and warped. Where are you, Wirt? I'm right here, Greg. I don't know where Greg is. Beatrice. I'm here, Wirt. I can't see you. I can't see anything. But he could hear her, and she was growing closer. Farther away, but of less concern, the gurgled voices of Ellery and the woodsman reverberated. Father. L, Ellery, is, is that you I hear? Father. Father, I'm here, I'm here. Wirt kept his arms extended in front of him as he speed walked, hoping the direction he chose was the direction that would lead him to Beatrice. Or, better yet, Greg. The darkness permeated around him, not even the faintest flicker of a star above. With each step, terror washed over him. What if the beast was right all along? What if blowing out its soul was the wrong thing to do? And Greg, was he gone? The trickle of tears slid down Wirt's cheeks, but lost in the state of disorientation and determination, he continued walking. His fingers pressed onto what felt like leather. Wirt. As if waking up, the scene flooded back into his view. Even the cold air returned, nipping at the tips of his ears and the bridge of his nose. He saw Beatrice's backside, still clad in Sarah's jacket, his fingertips rested at where her shoulder blades were. She jumped, letting out a small shriek, and spun around to face him. Not even a second after, Beatrice swung her arms around his neck and pulled him close to her. Wirt, you're okay. As nice as it was to hold Beatrice in his arms, to provide each other with warmth, Wirt pushed himself out of her grip. Greg. Where's Greg? His eyes searched the surrounding area for a boy in a tree stump, they settled on the unfortunate site some yards away. Greg. His brother coughed, spitting out a few leaves. Wirt. Check his pulse. It was the woodsman who spoke. Caught in a moment of alacrity and tension, Wirt did so accordingly, situating two fingers under Greg's jaw. Little beats vibrated against his fingertips. He should be fine if he has a pulse. The Edelwood hasn't gotten to his heart. Wirt was too relieved to care, but Beatrice tasked herself with asking the question running in his mind. Before you said it was too late for him. How is it different now? The beast. As long as it lived, the Edelwoods thrived. But he's gone now. 
a large square hand perched onto Wirt's shoulder. He looked up to see the woodsman. Let me help. Wirt stepped away from Greg and noticed that the woodsman held an axe in his hands. He cut away the wooden stump, freeing Greg from his Edelwood prison. Wirt caught his brother just before Greg could roll onto the ground beneath him. In the corner of his eye, the wood glazed over into a glossy finish, not unlike petrified wood. Thank you. It is I who should be thanking you, the woodsman lamented. He was the second person to say that to him, the first was Auntie Whispers the night before, to think he was speaking to Auntie Whispers over twenty-four hours ago was too surreal, it felt like a week passed from then to now. You brought my Ellery back to me. I should have known she was not in the lantern, but the beast knew how to manipulate. The beast hid me, father, Ellery piped up. She was standing next to her father, but from Wirt's crouched position, the woodsman blocked his view of her. I've been roaming the woods all this time trying to find someone who could see me and help me. I passed you once while I roamed in the woods, and you didn't see me. No one saw me except Wirt. A light fabric flurried against Wirt's backside. He assumed it was Beatrice, but he kept his eyes on the woodsman, who stared at him with an intensity that made him both curious and uncomfortable. Beatrice kneeled beside him. And the beast is gone, she asked. The woodsman nodded. You can feel it in the air. Wirt straightened his back and listened to the noises of nighttime. Despite the cold wind, the atmosphere was lighter, less daunting and fearsome. Was the beast right, he inquired. About the woods suffering without it. That has to be a lie, Beatrice added. The beast wasn't always here. It came from the northern woods, didn't it? When I was a bluebird, I overheard people talk about the beast and what it was. The beast liked to think the woods would die out if it was not for its presence, and for a while, I thought it was right. It certainly warped these woods for quite some time. Its presence was the reason your brother started. Showing symptoms of sickness, after all. But only time will tell now that it's no longer here. And I, it did come from the northern woods. Things are so vastly different up north. He gazed once again at Wirt. This realm extends well past the boundaries of ours. Wirt glowered. Ours. You come from the town on the other side of the garden wall, do you not? Yes, but. And is the Welling Pharmacy still on the corner of Braddock and Tally? Yeah, but, Wirt paused, sinking in his chest from the realization. Wait, you come from my side, too. The woodsman smiled. Oh yes. I crossed over when I was just a few years older than you. And that pharmacy was my father's. Wirt repositioned his arms, which were falling asleep, around Greg. Why, why did you cross the wall? I was struck with wanderlust, my boy. Back then, the town was hardly anything. I assume it's developed since my departure, but then, it was not even a stop off of the highway. My father wanted me to take over his business, and I, well, I was bored, so very bored with my life and the possibility that I would never leave the town. Then it was one spring afternoon when I grew restless, so I climbed the wall. The trees sang to me, and I haven't been back since. Did they sing for you? Wirt nodded. It took a deep recollection, but he remembered Halloween evening, vaguely, and how the wind called out to him. Ah, just as I thought. And your brother? I don't know. He never mentioned it. Yes, well, since my arrival, I've made many observations about these woods. The magic, no doubt, but other things, too. I went to the edge of the northern woods once, when I was much younger. It's so remote that there is no wall, like there is here. 
You could cross between realms without even knowing it. And there's more magic up there. Talking animals, barghests, all sorts of creatures. The beast was one of those creatures. In my earliest travels, I heard stories of a man long ago who ventured into the northern woods and became so depraved and starved, he became one with the forest and the dark magic that resides in those parts. There's no evidence to prove it, but I always suspected the beast was this man. And the wall. Word continued on. Why was the garden wall built? That I don't know. No one knows, truthfully. We're all terrified of it, that's for sure. In my years, I tried to find out, but there are too many stories floating about. Some think it was built by people on our side to keep the beast away, but some others believe it was there long before the beast ever arrived into the southern woods. How did you start to work for the beast? It was Beatrice this time. The woodsman turned his attention to Ellery, a hesitation in his eyes and face. It's, hard to say. It's okay, father, Ellery allowed. The woodsman remained quiet for a moment. I found its lantern one night, nearly eighteen months ago. It was nighttime and I'd been away from home all day, and when I returned, Ellery was gone. The beast approached me not too long, spewing lies about her being attacked and on the verge of death, and it could put her soul in the lantern as long as I agreed to cut the Edelwood trees. And fill the lantern with oil. I shouldn't ve believed it, but the shack was strewn apart with blood, as if a bandit had ransacked the place and, well, I gave in to its demands. I watched as it turned innocent children into Edelwood trees, though there weren't many. It preferred using children who crossed the wall, and in the past few decades, children from our side have gotten better at not doing that. I thought only five people had crossed the wall. Not including Greg or me. The woodsman shook his head. I'm afraid many more crossed the wall, long before your grandparents would have been born. As I learned from Cyrus Holland, he was not the first at all. The first. Wirt raised a brow. You mean, the one who wrote the letter? Oh, yes, I remember that story. He was an old, old man when I met him, already with great-grandchildren. He did work at that general store in town, but he was coming of age during a tumultuous period, and society was unkind to him. He was the son of former slaves who moved up north after the Civil War, but Cyrus's family died from a deadly illness. He suffered, too, but he was the only one who survived. He crossed the wall to escape his loneliness and the cruelty of society. The trees sang for him, too. The woodsman looked to the sky, where the clouds were parting, and stars glimmered in the cleared path. He lived a good life on this side, setting up his own general store in a town called Carpenter. He sent that message by pigeon, though I never quite understood how he trained the pigeon to send it over the wall. But yes, he was not the first. He told me dozens of children crossed the wall, never to be seen again on our side, but most likely to be turned into Edelwood and fed to the beast's lantern. Chances are those children never heard the trees sing for them, either. And have you met any others who crossed, besides me? No, though I assume Cyrus met a few besides me. A silence fell among them all. Wirt's arms numbed from the cold and weight of holding Greg. More questions brewed in his mind, but they all melded together, and he was unable to ask them. He just wanted to close his eyes and fall asleep, holding Greg and never letting him go, never letting him out of his sight ever again, dreaming about how he, Wirt Foreman, was going to be the best older brother a boy could ask for. Tell me, why did you and your brother cross? Wirt pursed his lips. Ah, that's, well, I don't know, really. He craned his neck a little to peek at Beatrice, 
Hoping to see one of her signature smirks, they discussed this long ago, and even then, he did not have a straight answer. Beatrice gazed at the ground before her, most likely aware of his gaze, and avoiding it. To impress a girl, maybe, he mumbled. Even though he knew this was a lie, it was the best answer he could think of at the moment. The woodsman let out a hearty chuckle. No one crosses the garden wall for another person, my boy. There's always a motive of self-interest. For Cyrus Holland, it was freedom from loneliness and society. For me, it was wanderlust and adventure. You cross this wall for your own reasons, even if you don't know what they are. You are quite the pilgrim, young man. Wirt stayed quiet, unsure of what to make of this. He yawned. When the woodsman asked, I suppose you will be heading back to the garden wall, he nodded sluggishly. That would be a first, no one who crosses ever returns, but I suppose now that the beast is gone, it could happen. He paused. I am afraid Ellery and I must head to our home now, for it is far from here, but we can offer you directions. Let me, Ellery chimed in, stepping into Wirt's view, he nearly forgot she was there the entire time the woodsman spoke. I've come to know these woods so well. She recited a few directions off the top of her head and had both Wirt and Beatrice repeat them to her until they were ingrained in their memories. You're about a day's journey away. Thank you, said Beatrice. It is us who should thank the two of you, the woodsman recounted once more. Rest up for the remainder of this night, and take care of the little one, now. The beast might not be here anymore and he will get better, but his recovery might take longer than you would think. The woodsman and Ellery waved goodbye. Wirt and Beatrice waved back, and watched the darkness of the wee hours of the morning swallow them as they walked away. Wirt closed his eyes, but they reopened at the sound of a frog's ribbits approaching them. Hey look, Beatrice whispered. She held Greg's frog to Wirt's face. I dropped him with the tea kettle not too far away, but I forgot about him. Useless frog, Wirt grumbled. Like Jason Funderburker. He and the frog blinked at each other. Greg, what do you think of Jason Funderburker as our frog's name? Greg's only answer was his breathing. Beatrice pushed back the little boy's bangs. I think he'll like it. Chapter 18, Strangely Easy to Mistake for Loathing Beatrice rested her head against Wirt's back, her eyes dry and lids heavy. The snow on the ground dampened her dress and froze her legs, but she ignored the numbing sensation and wrapped her arms around Wirt's waist. His cloak. Scratched against her cheek. Wirt cradled Greg in his own arms, she could feel the fabric of Greg's clothing against her forearms. They all sat in the quiet, soaking in the darkness and the puffs of wind. Beatrice wanted to fall asleep like this, for all of it to fade into a bittersweet nothingness until the morning. Right now, it was so pleasant, knowing Greg was safe, he would recover, and the beast would no longer roam amongst the trees. Wirt smelled of wet soil, ice, and hazelnuts. She wanted to remain in this position for as long as she could. Instead, she jerked her head up five minutes later, and stood up altogether. Come on. What? Wirt mumbled. Let's get out of here. But it's nighttime, and the woodsman and Ellery said. Not anywhere far, she clarified, just out of this spot. Even with Wirt and Greg alongside her, where they belonged, Beatrice did not want to stay here, where the memory of the beast lingered in the branches and the roots. Wirt must have shared her concerns, for he scrambled to his feet and picked up Greg in his arms, denying the help Beatrice offered him. She scooped up Jason Funderburker the frog and followed Wirt on shaky, cold legs. She also picked up the tea kettle she dropped earlier once they passed it, Jason Funderburker hopped into the mouth without a hesitation. 
They stopped once they could no longer see the remainder of Greg's premature and stony Edelwood tree, but the nighttime and their lethargy factored into their distance as well. Wirt placed his little brother at the base of a tree where the snow had never reached. Greg, fast asleep and blissfully unaware of all that had transpired, did not stir at any of this. Beatrice placed the tea kettle containing Greg's frog next to the passed-out boy. The frog poked its head above the kettle's opening. Staring blankly at its young owner, before curling back to the bottom of the kettle for shelter from the cold. I hope he recovers soon, Wirt whispered, his eyes admiringly fixated on the little boy. Beatrice glanced at the elder brother. He was fighting the urge to cry tears of happiness and worry, happiness that his brother was alive and would be okay, worry that his brother might have a slow recovery. She pressed her hand against Wirt's upper arm. Their eyes met, heavy, fatigued eyes, brown and blue, mixed and locked together. They smiled at each other, a silent understanding between them. You should rest, Beatrice said, breaking her eyes from Wirt's. We still have to get the wall. Wirt plopped next to Greg. Oh, right. He unfastened the buttons of his cape and removed the wool to blanket it over Greg. As sweet and heartfelt a gesture it was, Beatrice wondered if Wirt would survive the rest of the night without it. The collared white dress shirt he wore had long sleeves, but it was noticeably thin. Wirt showed no concern for this as he set aside his red hat and reclined against the tree trunk. Beatrice sat next to him as he yawned. It's weird, he said solemnly, my body is tired, but I don't think I can go to sleep, not immediately after all that. She understood what he meant, she expected the same from herself. I can help with that, Beatrice offered. Just put your head in my lap. She scolded herself for sounding too eager. I sound like Lorna. What? Oh come on, word, she fired back before any other ideas could settle in her mind. Beatrice was not about to argue with her friend after all that had happened. She grabbed a hold of the shoulder closest to her and tugged at him. Wirt circled his shoulder to shake her off. W what were you doing? I'm going to comb your hair. Wirt chuckled. Are you going to braid it, too? Don't be such a weirdo, Beatrice grumbled. She held out her hand again, ready to move him around, but to stop her, Wirt clasped his around her wrist. Despite the cold air and the snowy ground, Beatrice burned. Wirt set her hand down and wriggled around until his back was flat on the ground, his head in Beatrice's lap. He stared up at her. She laughed at the sight of his blank expression, and hoped it was dark enough that he could not see the rosiness in her cheeks. Now what? Beatrice ran her fingers through his brown hair. Just close your eyes. My mother used to do this with me when I was younger and couldn't sleep. It's supposed to be soothing and let you fall asleep faster. Beatrice sensed Wirt's tense shoulder muscles through the fabric of his white shirt and her blue dress. The strands of his ashy brown hair were fine and smooth against the warming up skin of her fingers. They remained quiet, their minds either on the same wavelength, or not at all. All Beatrice wrapped her mind around was seeing Wirt outsmart the beast and save his brother. It was an impossible task, and yet a fifteen-year-old boy from across the garden wall was able to free the woods of the terrible shadow. Wirt. Yeah. It's incredible, what you did. Um, thank you, Wirt accepted with meek gratitude, followed by a pause. I'm really sorry I didn't wake you up when I first saw he was gone. But I'm glad I found you again. She avoided his gaze, and pushed down the warm giddiness inside of her. I'm glad you found me, too. Wirt closed his eyes. I couldn't ve found Greg without you. Please, Beatrice dismissed. No, 
unserious, he pressed on. You helped me find Greg. If it wasn't for you. You're forgetting Ellery. She's not here right now, I'm talking to you. And you believed in me, even when I didn't. Her heart lifted at this statement, but she kept quiet. She was grateful that Wirt said nothing to follow up this statement, she had nothing to add, nothing to comment on. Within minutes, as she combed through his hair with her fingers, his muscles relaxed, his shoulders dropping into a relaxed position, the tensions around his eyes releasing and softening. His breathing slowed. The gentle repetitious movement of her hand in his hair certainly unwound her. This was supposed to be good. The beast was gone. She was no longer cursed. Greg was safe. Her friends would return to their home safely. So why was her heart dangling by a single thread on the cusp of breaking? It was easier to be a bird in Wirt's presence. Birds cannot smile big goofy smiles whenever dorky boys do dorky things. They cannot blush from attraction when baby-faced boys stare or touch them. They can stare at boys with crooked noses and big ears for as long as they want without it going noticed. They can sit on the knobby shoulders of skinny boys without going knobby need themselves. It was definitely easier for Beatrice to be a bluebird when Wirt was around. She would even say she preferred it. Except, not really. It was harder for her to be a human around Wirt. She smiled those big goofy smiles whenever Wirt went off on his informative, nerdy tangents, or tripped over his own feet because he was uncoordinated, or composed lines of poetry out loud and on the spot. She blushed whenever they looked at each other, or his hand brushed against hers. If she stared at him for too long, surveying his bent nose and rounded jaw and goofy ears, he would notice, or maybe, she noticed her own staring. Perching herself on his shoulder was impossible as a human, and if he just said something or looked at her a certain way, her knees buckled underneath her. With Wirt near her, she abhorred being a human. And she also loved it. In the moment when she smiled, or reddened, or gazed, or shook, her own body language betrayed her, and she hated how her emotions could be made so public advertised to the person she wished to keep them from. But after the smiles, the blushes, the looks, and the shivers, as the boys slept and she stayed awake, Beatrice cherished just being able to experience such human sensations. She remembered the first weird twinge, the first night she and him spent their time talking well into the wee hours of the morning, when she wrestled him and successfully pinned his arms above his head and against the floor. At first, it was like wrestling with one of her brothers, total play, no real reason, no end goal other than victory. But time stood still when she remained above him, their eyes hooked together, a complete silence surrounding them. Deep in the pit of her stomach, it went off. She ignored it then, and unheeded subsequent ones until she could no longer neglect them. Like now. How could she ever deny herself the intensity? Even with the impending departure in a day, or two, she savored the warmth that emanated within her chest and spread to every ligament and tendon. All was well. Greg was safe. The beast had perished. The woodsman reunited with his daughter, Greg and Wirt would be back over the garden wall soon, but she chose to ignore this. For the time being, she focused on Greg, sleeping against the tree, unaware of it all, and Wirt, with his head in her lap and her fingers in his hair. Wirt, she said at a normal pitch. He was unresponsive. Wirt, are you awake? She asked once more. Still no response. He was fast asleep. Wirt, I've kept a lot of secrets from you and Greg, she said, uncertain of why she started to speak and what she would say. All she knew was that it felt right. Leading you farther away from the wall and my curse, for starters. The Edelwoods and the Beast. 
but I was only trying to protect you too. I think. Those from your side of the wall shouldn't know about just how terrifying it could be, and the truths of all the people who did cross the wall but never returned, all those things the woodsman talked about. Even on this side of the wall, we didn't know the full scope of it all. It was all terrible stuff, but even if you were such an asshole when I first met you, you didn't need to know any of that. I still kind of wish you never knew about it. Beatrice paused. He and Greg were still asleep. I guess it's no secret that I thought you were a jerk. I mean, you held me captive at first. And you're so stubborn, you nerd. Stubborn and passive-aggressive. You think you're so smart and that you know everything. It's so frustrating because you'll just... She stopped in her verbal tracks, that's, not the point. What I'm trying to say is that, not that you can hear me, but, well, things have changed. A lot, actually. Ever since the curse, I separated myself from my family, determined to fix the shame I'd brought upon them and myself, also afraid that they'd hate me because I was the reason. I was alone for so many months. Her eyes were lined with salty, hot water. No, that's not even true. I was alone before the curse. I had my family, but I didn't always get along with them. I didn't have any friends, except for our pet dog. You probably know that I can be pretty, abrasive. And mean. My mother always said it's the red hair. But you know me. I'm hot-headed and I have a short fuse, and, well, you and Greg are my first friends. My best friends, actually. Being with you for all this time, it's like I've known you for years. She glanced over at the sleeping Greg. Greg is a sweetheart. When you told me that he was missing, it was like I lost one of my own brothers. And seeing him turning into an Edel Wood. I can't imagine what you were thinking. I know you love him. He's a handful, but he's kind. I'm sort of jealous he's your brother and not mine. Beatrice felt as if she was standing on the edge of a high cliff now, looking into a massive lake below, knowing well enough she was going to take the plunge, but wondering how. Would she walk off and pretend it was unexpected? Would she charge full throttle and dive headfirst? And, you, Wirt. I can't even begin to explain how I feel about you. An extra step to the edge. I wanted nothing to do with you at first, but since then, I don't know. I kind of, like listening to you talk, you know. You aren't so annoying. And cutting my wings gave you a few brownie points. She laughed weakly, only to bite her lower lip afterwards. She did not have to take that leap, or plunge, or whatever she was going to recklessly do right now, is it reckless? It's like being cautious and reckless all at once. She could stop. Walk away from the edge of the cliff and never bring this up again. But Marguerite and Lorna wondered if I, well, felt more towards you. Was she diving or walking off at this point? Which I thought was damn stupid. I mean, you're shorter than me. I tried so hard not to pay attention to them. She could stop. Wirt could not hear her, anyways. But when I thought that you'd gone over the wall without saying goodbye, I was furious, and disappointed, and sad. My heart sank. Maybe it split right in two. Right now, I can stop. Wirt can't hear me. But when I saw you in the meadow, I realized how right Marguerite and Lorna were. The tears rolled from her eyes, no reason to hold them back anymore. Amidst the bleariness and her drippy nose, she choked out what she kept hidden from herself for the past few days. I do feel more for you, and it's not just a friendship. I like you, Wirt, like you, romantically, and I know you can't hear me and you don't feel the same way. But that was the point. 
Mort did not return those feelings, but he could not hear her, either. She could say whatever. We've known each other for so little time, and I hated you at the beginning, or maybe I didn't hate you, I just didn't know you. But I do now, and I have feelings for you. She sniffed. I wish you and Greg could stay here. It's selfish of me to think that, I know, and I know you have to go back, but I had to say it for my own sake. She stopped winding her fingers in his hair and sighed. After everything that's happened, I think it's time I start being honest to myself. She was floating at the surface of that lake now, undisturbed and weightless. Beatrice closed her eyes and sat back against the tree trunk, hoping that she would fall asleep soon and the tears would cease. Wirt waited for Beatrice to resume, but her breathing slowed into little snores. The sun was not quite at the highest point in the clear sky when Wirt woke up, but it was close enough for him to consider it noon. However long he slept was not enough, he yawned right as he opened his still drowsy eyes and rolled onto his sides. He brought his hands underneath his head as a boundary from the ground. This felt like deja vu, half asleep on the ground, a chilly breeze. Wirt's spine shot up straight. Greg, he hollered, his chest constricting and his heart hurtling at the fear that Greg was. Next to him. Asleep and calm, curled underneath the Union soldier's cloak. Jason Funderburker the frog, Jason Funderfrog has a nice ring to it, was at his face, a protective and solid force despite its absent stare. Wirt's face softened as he sighed in relief and leaned back. It was a new day, Greg was with him, and they were safe. The woodsman was right, there really was a serenity to the atmosphere now. With the sun out on this late morning, it was kind of warm, too, with the breeze the only reminder that it was still autumn, but pleasant to the touch. Wirt folded his hands onto his lap and let his eyelids fall once again. Good, you're awake. Wirt juddered from the thundering voice of Beatrice, and intentionally so, he thought, but he decided not to call her out on it. Beatrice stood at his feet with a mischievous sneer on her face, and her wavy auburn hair hung loose over her shoulders. With both of her fists, she clutched the skirt of her dress in a manner that created a makeshift basket. While you were sleeping the morning away, I went ahead and foraged for some berries and nuts for us to eat. We left that basket of Adelaide's wherever, so now we have to live off the land again. She stooped to the ground, displaying her gatherings in her lap. She grabbed a red fruit in between her index finger and thumb, a rose hip. Want one? Wirt nodded. Well, aren't you going to take it? Beatrice groused. She brandished the rose hip to his face. Oh, um, yeah. He outstretched his hand and watched as Beatrice gingerly placed the fruit into his palm. He chewed at the fruit and snatched another five from the dozen in Beatrice's lap, the thought of having his hand close to Beatrice's thighs flustered him enough. I already had my share of rose hips. The rest are for Greg, if he'll eat. Wirt popped an extra rose hip into his mouth and turned to Greg. Greg, PST, hey Greg. Un. Do you want some rose hips for breakfast? Or brunch? It is the most important meal of the day. The best meal, too, Greg squeaked as he struggled to sit up. Wirt handed his brother one of the rose hips. Greg nibbled at it until it was finished, but did not. Ask for another one. He patted Jason Funderburker before closing his eyes again. Wirt finished his rose hips as Beatrice placed the remaining six into Greg's tea kettle. We have to hurry. We lost a lot of travel time from sleeping in, she said as she stood up and smoothed her skirt down. The blue was stained with the red juice of the rose hips. Her red hair framed her freckled face, and Wirt noticed how the fiery locks complemented the cool blue of her dress. He never saw her as a human in full sunlight. 
He saw her in sunset, moonlight, and the many lanterns and candles adorning the Endicott Gray estate, but never in the daytime. It was like seeing a famous painting in person, absorbed in the grandeur while picking up the details never studied before. You look nice, he thought aloud. He clammed up when Beatrice looked at him, why did I say that out loud, and held his breath. Beatrice, however, only laughed. Yeah, okay, word. And you don't look like you had the worst sleep of your life. Her laughter petered out, and she gave him a grave look. You did sleep, didn't you? Yes, he answered almost too quickly. I slept great. I woke up not even thirty minutes ago, didn't I? Beatrice narrowed her eyes at him, but shrugged it off. Okay then. See if you can get Greg up, or carry him. Word shook Greg awake, but his brother rolled away. He threw the cape over his shoulders and fastened the first buttons together. With Beatrice's help, Wirt was able to hoist Greg onto his back piggyback style. Hopefully he could carry the added weight for a longer distance than he had the evening before. Jason Funderburker hopped onto his shoulder, a reminder of Beatrice as a bluebird. And the amount of time she spent at that exact spot. Beatrice carried the tea kettle with the rose hips, and they set about their way to the garden wall. The day's journey was not long, but it was challenging. With Greg carrying Greg on his back, and still reeling from the previous night's running, Wirt wanted to collapse to the ground with every step and beg that they stop for the day. He could see it in Beatrice, too. She limped a little as she walked, claiming this to be from the soreness in her back and legs, only prompting Wirt to think about Beatrice's legs, and how long they were despite the dress around them, and she grunted every few steps or so. They did stop on occasion to eat other foods of the forest, Beatrice found another bush of autumn olives, Wirt was certain he learned more about woodland survival from her than the short time he spent in Boy Scouts, and rested their feet along with other necessities. But Beatrice insisted they keep walking, so he did. Most of the snow had melted away, a few clumps and patches sticking in the shadier parts of the forest floor, while water dripped from the branches and glistened in the disappearing daylight. To distract themselves from the discomfort of walking, Beatrice and Wirt asked each other questions about themselves. Nonsensical, inconsequential questions. Wirt told her he preferred tea to coffee, while Beatrice hated both. His favorite fruit was raspberries because they were delicate, Beatrice liked apples because of their versatility. Wirt guessed Greg's favorite to be lemon because of lemonade. Spaghetti was his favorite food because it was the first dish he learned to cook for himself. Beatrice usually hated working in the kitchen with her mother because it was too stuffy and crowded, but she always enjoyed the smell of pot roast with carrots and potatoes. Once, shortly after Greg was born, Wirt watched a nature documentary about animals that eat their young, and he dreamt later that night that his parents ate him and Greg. Beatrice admitted to putting the farm cat in the icebox when she was younger because she thought he would like it there. Wirt had so many questions to ask Beatrice, and he avoided the one he wanted to ask the most. They stopped walking once the sun dipped below the canopy of the trees and the light was almost non-existent. Maybe about another five miles to go, but it's dark, and my legs hurt. There was that mention of her legs. Wirt hated it, it made his head light and his stomach a yo-yo. Wirt slid Greg onto the ground and took a seat next to him. Beatrice released a weighty breath as she dropped next to Wirt. Are you hungry? she asked. No. I'm more tired than hungry. Me too. Greg. Wirt poked at his little brother. Greg, are you hungry? And no. Let him sleep, Beatrice suggested. He's still recovering. But is it any good? He should be eating something for a good recovery. 
Wirt grabbed a rose hip from the tea kettle and held it to Greg's face. Come on, Greg, you have to at least have a snack. Beatrice reached both of her hands over to the one near Greg. Wirt tensed at her touch, her body was leaning over his, too. He's okay. He's not in pain, she soothed. Her hair smelled of gingerbread. A sticky juice oozed between their fingers. Beatrice moved away to wipe her hands on her dress. Wirt opened his fist, the fleshy carcass of the rosehip sat at the center, shriveled and emitting the red liquid. He tossed it to the ground and rubbed his hand against his pant leg, not that it helped. Beatrice laughed at him. He huffed at first, but then laughed at himself, too. He set aside the cone hat and draped his cloak over Greg again. Don't you get a cold? Would you like Sarah's coat? No, you keep it. Seconds passed before either of them said a word. Beatrice in the moonlight was soft and ethereal, her freckles darker and amplified against her alabaster skin. Sarah is nice. Hmm. Sarah. I met her, remember. This is her coat. She's nice, like you said. I can see why you like her. Oh. Wirt was unsure if this was territory he wanted to explore or not. Yes, she's nice. But I don't think I like her anymore. I don't know if I ever liked her. Beatrice cocked her head to the side. Really? Why's that? I mean, I do like her, as a friend. But romantically, maybe I only like the idea of her. You said to yourself, I didn't really know her. He scratched his head. Typical hopeless poetic loser stuff, I guess. Oh. Beatrice shifted in her seat on the ground. Is, is there a reason you think that now? Silence arose. Word outstretched his hand so he could rest it on her cheek, a final, final reassurance for himself that she was in fact real and that this, all of this, was not a dream. Wait, no, that's dumb, Wirt mentally countered, and retracted his hand away before it touched Beatrice's face. His mind ran laps in. Search of what exactly he was doing, and what he was feeling. Was he going to do this? He kind of had to, did he not? Did, did you mean what you said? Beatrice raised an eyebrow. What I said. Had she not understood what he meant, or was she pretending it never happened? Wirt contemplated whether or not he could laugh it off and act as if it was nothing, but knowing Beatrice, she would make him finish. His heart pounded, and Wirt dug his hole even deeper. L last night. Beatrice's eyes narrowed in confusion. I don't know what you're, she stopped, and a hand slapped itself across her open mouth. You heard that. But you were asleep. I asked and you didn't respond. I I I was a asleep, Wirt stuttered, but I woke up at one point, and you were talking to yourself about how lonely you had been, and, I don't know. I didn't want to stop you. He rubbed the back of his head and calculated when would be the best time to flee from the scene. Except he kept himself seated, and with a nervous gulp, Wirt added, you were saying all these kind things. Beatrice punched Wirt in the arm and subsequently buried her face into the palms of her hands. Ow. The impact left his upper arm stinging and sent mildly painful ripples throughout the rest of the limb. God damn it, this is embarrassing. Beatrice muffled through her fingers. The whole point of you sleeping was so that you couldn't hear what I was saying. It'd be like I didn't say it at all. Wirt pried her hand away from her hot, dewy face. She refused to look up at him, instead her eyes transfixed on the patch of ground separating them. She exhaled a heavy sigh and brought her right hand into her lap. 
If he frowned or smiled, it was hard to say. It felt like both, as odd as it was. It's, it's okay, he mumbled. It's, nice. His face burned, as if he were badly sunburnt. His insides fluttered. Beatrice crossed her arms in defiance. How is it nice, she growled, her eyes moved from the ground to his. In the moonlight, they shined a crystal blue, the green flecks overshadowed. Wirt smiled. The girl in front of him, red-headed, freckled, furious and embarrassed, was the most wonderful person he ever knew. Well, probably because. Wirt bit his lips, reminding himself to keep his eyes focused on hers. It was too late for him to turn back now, was it not? Be because I. No, he could not look her in the eyes as he said it. He darted his eyes off to the side before finishing his sentence, rushed, rambling, without a breath. I feel the same way about you too. He peeked at Beatrice's softened face before shutting his eyelids together. What, she whispered. W what was that? P please don't make me say it again. He opened one eye, then the other. Another beat before them. Wirt, you shouldn't. It was a rambunctious impulse. It was the same, indescribable kind he experienced when he was seven and thought doing a belly flop off the community pool's diving board was a good idea, when he was twelve and thought he could inline skate faster than anyone else, when he first crossed the garden wall. Wirt pulled away almost as soon as his lips came into contact with Beatrice's, out of fear and uncertainty for what he was actually doing. It was the first time he ever kissed a girl, let alone said girl being Beatrice. She gave off an expression of astonishment. His nose panched a little, it had squashed against Beatrice's when he kissed her. I I I am sorry. I do don't know what. He stopped at the touch of Beatrice's hand against the back of his head, her fingers weaved through portions of his hair. Her hand was cold, but satisfying to feel against his scalp. She was closer to him, too, close enough to cause his already amplified heartbeat to quicken. With her hand, Beatrice gently pushed his head towards hers, and kissed him. This time, it was more concentrated. Exhilarating and fascinating, with time frozen but weren't self-aware of how his body felt. His heart thumped, his skin boiled, his stomach rode a roller coaster, with twists and turns and ups and downs, the suddenly sweet, fresh, autumn-chilled air with the faint hint of winter breezed past the two of them. He thought Beatrice knew what she was doing, but she was also inexperienced in her own right. Instinct told him to wrap his arms around Beatrice's waist and press her body against his. He was not sure if he was actually reciprocating the kiss, but Beatrice pulled away before Wirt could make any further decisions. She turned away. You really shouldn't feel that way about me, she stated, simple and clear. But, but I do, Wirt responded. And you feel the same about me. Since, since when have you felt the same? Um, I don't know. Beatrice's brows rutted together. She held up another hand, ready to smack his arm again. I don't, he hollered, arms held up in the air. It kinda just, happened, I guess. He eyed her, seeking her approval. Beatrice dropped her hand into her lap and sighed. You shouldn't feel that way about me, she repeated. Why? You're leaving tomorrow. But you're coming to see my side, too. Hear me play clarinet and all. And after that? You stay and I go. Word ignored that. He wished to kiss her again. He liked the previous two, especially the second one, the fuzziness they gave him. When he brought his face closer to hers, she moved backwards and shot him a concerted glare. He fell forwards. You're going home, Wirt.
tomorrow. Wirt backed away, forced to consider Beatrice's statements. We're going back tomorrow. He spent the last two weeks on a journey meant to return him and his brother to their hometown, but in the last few days, it felt more like a necessity, something he should do rather than what he wanted to do. And now, with Beatrice's previous words and the electrified emotion coursing between the two of them, Wirt realized he had not called his house home for many days now. Clearly that held some psychological, subconscious meaning behind it. If his physical home was no longer a spiritual home, he wondered, what if, maybe. I don't want to think about that right now. Beatrice scrunched her nose and eyes together. We have to think about it. Not tonight. Let's not think about it tonight. But you're leaving tomorrow, she repeated again, this time slower, hesitant and worried, rather than the unemotional reminder from before. But not tonight, he blurted, taking one of her hands into his. He closed his eyes, took a deep breath, and reopened his eyes. I have traveled a long way, merely to look on you, to touch you. Beatrice rolled her eyes, but her concern thawed. Is that one of your own? It's another Walt Whitman. Good grief, you're a total loser. He smiled at her, and she smiled back. Even with Greg, nearby and asleep, they were the only two people alive. Please, let's just have tonight, Wirt pleaded once he thought it was safe for him to bring up the matter once again. We'll pretend it won't end, okay. And when it does, Beatrice murmured. Then we'll worry about it then. Wirt placed his hands on Beatrice's shoulders and leaned forwards to kiss her forehead. He moved backwards and held her hands in his lap as he waited for Beatrice to provide him with an answer. She stared at him with her deceiving doe eyes. She twisted a tendril of her red hair around her index finger, an accompanying, subdued smile. Okay. Quiet and nervous. A beat. She released the curl. Okay, she reiterated, resolute and louder. As Wirt's lips opened and curved upwards, she kissed him. You know, I don't want to like you. I don't want to like you, either. Shut up, Wirt. You totally want to like me. I'm wonderful in every way imaginable. See. You're so egotistical. You're passive-aggressive. You're selfish. So are you. You're mean. You're indecisive. You swear a lot. You're too careful, until you're not. You're not careful enough. You're a worrywart. She snorted. A worrywart. You make terrible jokes. I make great jokes. You just have a terrible sense of humor. There it is again. Your arrogance. You're a know-it-all. And you aren't. You're poetic. You're confident. You're short. You're red-headed. You have big ears and a big nose. You have a ton of freckles. You have puny arms. And your hands are like doll hands. You have pretty blue eyes. Your shoulders make you disproportionate. You're beautiful. She paused and pressed her lips together in a line to hide the creeping smile. Give it a few years, and you won't look so bad yourself. I was in the middle before I knew that I had begun. Wirt, with his eyes closed, felt Beatrice move away from him. He opened his eyes to see her gazing at him with a raised eyebrow. More dorky poetry. It's a quote from a book. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Beatrice snickered. That sounds very stuffy and very boring. It's not. 
Even though he read it last year in his freshman English class, he enjoyed it, along with Jane Austen's other works. I think you'll like it. You remind me of Elizabeth Bennet, the heroine. It was up to Beatrice to decide if he was Fitzwilliam Darcy. He hoped he was. Beatrice, however, was unamused. Well what does it mean, you loser? You can't just say that without explanation and expect me to know what it means. Word acted offended, but truth be told, he anticipated Beatrice's jest. He had his reasons, he quoted Austin so he could return to a question she asked him before. It's a line towards the end, when Mr. Darcy. You, his name is Mr. Darcy. Word ignored her interjection. Mr. Darcy reconfesses his feelings for Elizabeth. He doesn't know when he started to feel for her, he just knows that he does. Word paused to see if Beatrice was understanding him. It was hard to tell, but she erased the smirk from her face, and stared at him with a keenness. Well, that's me. I don't know when I started to have feelings for you, but I know it happened at one point, and here I am now. Beatrice smiled. Not even an estimate. Well, I mean, I know I started to think of you differently after we talked in the wardrobe. Gross, wort. I was a bird. Not like that, he shot back, although he knew she was teasing him for the sake of receiving a reaction. Besides, by that point, I knew you were actually a human. But I think that's when we became friends. Now, romantic feelings. I don't know, really. Beatrice poked his nose. I think, for me, it was when you played the bassoon. Word cringed. I don't believe you. Even if you were terrible, and I mean actually terrible, I would not have known. I just liked how you wanted to cheer me up. She paused. Or, maybe it was that first night, when we were talking. You could be a real troubadour, with your poems and instruments. Does it really matter, though? Word asked. Does it matter when we started to have feelings for each other? We've known each other for two weeks. I think it matters a lot. Word squeezed her hand. You and I both know it feels longer than that. Beatrice rested her cheek onto his shoulder. It does. This is like from here to eternity. What? This. Beatrice raised an eyebrow at him. Us. Yeah. What's from here to eternity? It's a movie, Wirt said. There's this famous scene where the two characters are kissing on the beach, and the waves roll over them. We're not on the beach. It's too cold for that. I know. But it's the way we're. Wirt trailed off. The way we're what? He positioned. Beatrice laid with her back to the ground. Wirt rested on his side, his hip against hers, propped on an elbow so that his upper body hovered over her. She giggled at his self-inflicted embarrassment. Have you seen this movie? Once with my mom. I don't remember much about it, other than that scene because it's easily recognizable. And we're like them. Just in that scene. Maybe we can pretend the wind is water. I don't want to pretend anything. Wirt stared at her. Neither do I. The wind and the rustling leaves and each other's breathing filled the air around them. Beatrice reached up to caress his face, but Wirt seized her wrist with his free hand. Arrested in the silence with goosebumps on her arms and neck, Beatrice feared Wirt would set her hand down and end the moment, end the night, altogether. However, Wirt brought her hand to his mouth and kissed the center of her palm, full and slow. Warm milk and honey poured into her stomach, the liquid seeped to her limbs and pumped through her veins. She failed to suppress a chuckle, and her smile was almost involuntary.
What's so funny? Wirt asked when he pulled away from her hand, and he slackened his grip on her wrist. The pucker of his lips left a faint residue of moisture. Instead of gross and sloppy, it was intimate and romantic. You're such a dork. Underneath all that cynicism and worry is a hopeless romantic. She rustled her right hand, the one Wirt left kissless, in his hair. Wirt wrinkled his face. You don't like when I kiss your hand. She rolled her eyes and honked his nose. That is the exact opposite of what I meant, you loser. You should know by now my compliments are disguised as insults. Oh, was all Wirt said, but he smiled softly and kissed her left palm again. He kissed her fingertips and knuckles, each contact of her skin and his lips cautious, warm, sweet, and lingering. You done, she teased once his lips left her thumb's lower knuckle. You just said you like it when I kiss your hand. I do, she confirmed, and clenched her fingers around the collar of his shirt. But I'm afraid you'll spend so much time kissing my hand and start with the other one, you'll be too tired to kiss me. Even in the dark, she saw Wirt roll his eyes, but he grinned at her, too. As he leaned down to kiss her, she pressed an index finger to his lips. Oh, and one more thing. What now, he muffled. I know it's bound to happen because you're this literary type and all, but ease up on all the references. She could feel Wirt begin to open his mouth, but she pushed her finger harder against his face. I don't want to be some random couple on a beach, or this Elizabeth and Mr. Funny name. Mr. Darcy. Well, I don't want us to be them. I want us to be us. She removed her finger. Beatrice and Wirt, former cursed bluebird and goofy-looking pushover. She searched Wirt's face, but even with the unusually bright moonlight, it was difficult to read his expression. Okay, he agreed with a nod of the head, and finally another grin. Maybe she had more to say, but before those thoughts arose, Beatrice yanked his shirt towards her and pulled him into a deep, fervent kiss. Neither of them admitted it, but the day ahead frightened them. They chose not to discuss it with each other that night, and they never did. But they thought about it on their own. Nuzzled next to each other, they wanted to stay awake for as long as possible, just in case the night would never end. Beatrice kissed him at various spots on his face, his cheeks, his nose, his lips, during the comfortable silences. Wirt stroked her hair and told stories about him and Greg growing up. Every cheesy word of his poetry, every trivial story they shared with one another, every kiss, every squeeze of the hand, every light-hearted quip, with the morning ahead and the mystery it held, none of it would go to waste. At this moment, far up in the clouds, a little boy sat on wispy tufts that looked like pink and blue cotton candy. His body slept soundly, but the spirit looked over the scene. This was not his first time in the clouds, but it was the first time he chose not to play with the various cloud spirits, and instead opted to pay attention to his brother and their friend, who was once a bluebird. Greg squished his cheeks together as Wirt and Beatrice talked. They beamed because they were happy, and being nice to each other. The way they looked at each other was the way his parents looked at each other, stupidly but excitedly. Their voices were soft, so as not to disturb the sleeping Greg beside Wirt, but they could have spoken as loud as they wanted, it would not wake him up. Greg listened to their conversations, silly and serious. Wirt often spoke several lines of poetry, and Beatrice would tease him about it. Bleck, he said with accompanying raspberry noises whenever Wirt and Beatrice kissed, but he secretly liked seeing the two of them share these gestures. The whole time he and Wirt knew Beatrice, Greg witnessed the two arguing and bickering and being mean to each other, even after they announced their friendship. It was nice to see them not being mean, but being kind and sweet and all lovey-dovey, 
even if being lovey-dovey also meant acting gross. Young love is so astounding, said the nice voice Greg had grown accustomed to in his various nighttime trips to the clouds. I think Wirt and Beatrice will get married, he responded. He stuck his tongue out when Beatrice kissed Wirt's nose for the fourth or fifth time that night. Were they meant to be together? Is Beatrice Wirt's one? That's what my mom and dad call each other sometimes. That's difficult to determine, Gregory, his friend replied. Your brother was always meant to come here, to this side of the garden wall. But was Beatrice meant to cross paths with the two of you? I'm afraid I cannot answer that. I don't know if anyone can. The gentlewoman remained quiet. Beatrice and Wirt had stopped kissing, but they sat next to each other closely. I must send you back, Greg. She sounded serious, like when his mom asked him to do some chores around the house, or finish his homework. He pouted. Ah, already. It's time for you to return to the ground. But I will see you tomorrow. I promise you that. Okay. Greg accepted. He slept until the morning.